Please turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Peter's continuing a series of instructions on what it looks like to live as elect exiles in the context of various relationships. This section of the letter began in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and instead keep your conduct among the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And he spells out, what does this look like, this honorable conduct? What does it look like in the context of civil authorities? What does it look like in the context of our work and in our, now today in our marriages? Peter's instructions are profoundly countercultural, since his basic instruction is this, live as free people by submitting. We're to be subject to every human institution, chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject to the emperors and governors, to our masters. And now this morning, wives are instructed to be subject to their husbands. In each area of life, Peter says, accept the appropriate authority. Now, in the first several Christian centuries, the first several centuries after Christ's death and resurrection, the early church was viewed with much suspicion as a revolutionary movement. It was a group of people, uh, the early Christians, who followed a man named Jesus, who they said was the king, not Caesar, ultimately. They proclaimed that this king Jesus brought freedom for all who followed him. And they invited women, slaves, foreigners, everyone to join their community. Now, from the outside looking in, you can think this sounds like a revolutionary community, that it's going to try and overturn the, the, uh, the, the government, the empire. Peter affirms, yes, all of that is true. We do follow a king named Jesus who brings freedom. We welcome all. And yet, at the same time, Peter says early, he calls the Christians to use their newfound freedom as Jesus followers to submit. In this bizarre mix of freedom and submission, it's going to get the attention of onlookers. Some will be silenced in their criticism of Christianity when they see how we submit to civil authorities. Others who initially speak ill of Christians will ultimately join in glorifying God. Let's look now at how this countercultural revolutionary pattern of free submission works in the context of marriage. We're going to read together 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. I forgot to mention earlier, but uh, two weeks ago we had a question and answer time 
after service, and we'll do that again today about 10 minutes after service, have a question and answer time, since again, this is a topic that inevitably raises lots of questions. There's, there's lots to be said, I probably will say too much as it is. My outline this morning simply follows the structure of Peter's passage. He gives two basic instructions for a healthy marriage. It says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, understand your wives. First, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. To begin with, we've got to do a little bit of spade work to understand Peter's instructions. After all, why are his instructions to wives three times as long as his instructions to husbands? Is this just another example of ancient misogyny, trying to keep women in their place? Well, no, in keeping with the pattern we've seen in the previous two paragraphs, Peter focuses here on those who have less power in a relationship from the perspective of the world. In verses 13 through 17, he addressed ordinary citizens, not governors. In verses 18 through 25 that we looked at last week, he addressed servants, not masters. And now Peter addresses wives. Furthermore, as with servants, that Peter spends this much space addressing wives uh, may simply be for the fact that there may well have been more women than men in the early church to whom he's writing. Most likely that was the fact or the case. From a modern perspective, a passage to, uh, to, like this looks to us like it's, it's holding women back in some way. And yet in the ancient world, Christianity was seen as profoundly elevating the status of women. In Roman law, women could be citizens and so have legal standing above slaves and foreigners, but their citizenship was second class compared to male citizens. Women couldn't vote or hold office. They were expected to stay in the home. Their children were the exclusive property of the fathers who could even put the children to death if they wished. The ancient view of women was so low that infant girls were exposed far more frequently than infant boys. But now Christianity comes along as a new movement where women are called equal heirs of grace with men. They're on equal footing with men, where women are treated as moral agents in their own right, where their inner lives are treated as important. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul assumes that women in the early church meetings, early Christian meetings, would both pray and prophesy out loud. So the irony is that in our day, Peter's instructions might sound backward, but it's only because our world has been so thoroughly influenced by Christianity. In Peter's day, the fact that he writes so much to wives was attractive to women. Philosophers and ethicists, politicians of the day, didn't address women directly. They more or less ignored them. But Peter writes directly to wives, saying their behavior their attitudes, their inner lives are just as important as any man's. Notice a couple other things in Peter's opening instruction. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. First, Peter says wives are only to submit to their own husbands. Only to their husbands. Contrast this with the ancient philosopher Aristotle, who wrote, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. Okay? In Aristotle's mind, it's the nature of men to rule, the nature of women to submit, and that's just the way it is across the board. 
Peter doesn't base his instruction on any alleged inferiority of female nature, nor does he instruct women in general to submit to men in general. There's no place in the church for sexism and misogyny. If a man starts bossing around my wife or one of my daughters just because he's a man, I'll say, you're out of line, back off. You're not in charge of these women. No, Peter says, the wife is to submit only to her husband. This term submit or be subject, depending on the translation you're looking at, is a milder term than obey. To submit means to accept a legitimate authority, to follow a leader. The idea here in Peter's passage is not that the wife has to obey whatever her husband says like a servant. The husband puts in his order for dinner and the wife better make it. No, that's not what Peter's saying at all. Rather, Peter gives the same instruction or the same command in chapter 5, verse 5 to the church in general. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders in the church. So the way we accept our elders, the council's authority in the church, is an illustration for wives. Okay? You as members of the church follow the council as your leaders, but you don't expect the elders to micromanage your life and tell you every little thing, which book you should read next in the Bible or that sort of thing. It's generally following the leadership of the elders. Third then, if I can speak directly for a moment to the younger people in our congregation or those who are single, this should shape how you think about a potential spouse. Young ladies, you have great freedom in Christ and it is your right to decide for yourself to marry or not marry and to decide who you might take as a husband. Okay? A man doesn't get to come along and club you over the head and say, you're my wife now, you have to submit to me. It's a woman's decision to marry a man. And when you're making this decision, you shouldn't be asking yourself, is he attractive or popular? Does he make a lot of money? Will he likely go bald? The basic question you should ask yourself is this. Is this the sort of man whose leadership I can follow? Will he be a godly leader in our household? That should be the basic question when evaluating any potential date or spouse. Young men then, to be a good husband above all else, you should strive to be a godly servant leader, a man that a woman would be happy to take as her husband. Jesus tells his disciples he's a king who came not to be served, but to serve others. He says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for my own. And a young woman should see a reflection of that in your life, young men. They should look at you and see that your focus is on serving, not being served. That you're willing to lay down your life for hers. Not in some epic action movie way, but in daily dying to yourself for her sake. Well, that's the ideal. But Peter recognizes that we don't live in an ideal world. In the early churches today, oftentimes women would become Christians before their husbands. And so the question then faced by Peter's readers is, what now? Does my new freedom in Christ mean that I'm free from this marriage? My husband isn't leading like Jesus in a self-sacrificing way. Am I free from his authority to do whatever I want? In verses 1 and 2, Peter takes up this question. He says, be subject to your own husband so that even if, some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they may nevertheless be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter's saying, submit to your husband. Here we need to note two 
important realities. First, Peter's presupposition is that the marriage bond is so fundamental and basic that even one member of a marriage becoming a Christian and the other not, having different religions, even that doesn't dissolve the marriage bond. In our day, people, people regularly divorce because they've grown apart or they don't share common interests anymore. For a Christian, this should be inconceivable. Jesus teaches, following Genesis 2, that marriage is a union put together before God. How dare we undo it? In Malachi, it says a marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, a relationship, a contract, an agreement that God himself is the witness of. God himself guarantees the marriage covenant. Maybe you eloped to Las Vegas, and the only witness to your wedding was an Elvis impersonator. Let's say that's the case. Even in that bizarre of a wedding, Peter's saying God, too, was the witness of your covenant vows. God, too, backs them up. Well, what could possibly be bigger, a bigger change in interest, or, or, or as it were, growing apart, than one spouse changing religion? Imagine if you're, those of you who are married, your spouse changed religion. Yet Peter says, or presupposes that even then the marriage bond stands. You see the glory of marriage precisely in this radical commitment? When we're young and in love, what do we say? We say, I love you while this date lasts. I love you today or this month, but probably not next month. No, what do you say? You say, I love you, I'll always love you. Think of even the candy hearts of Valentine. They say forever on them. Because that's what, when we feel love, that's what we say. This is a forever thing. And marriage is the most radical expression of this committed love. It's, I'm not just saying always and forever with my words. I'm legally binding myself to you until death do us part. So Peter presupposes that the marriage bond is absolutely fundamental. Second, Peter's saying here that our behavior as Christians can become a stumbling block that keeps people away from Jesus. But also our behavior can clear the way for people to come to Jesus or even attract them to the Christian way of life. In the ancient world, generally, husbands decided the religion that the whole household, uh, women, children, slaves, on down the list, would, be part, would join. So the mere fact that the wife becomes a follower of Jesus might look like she's rebelling against her husband. She's going off her own way. But Peter says just the opposite should happen when a non-Christian spouse sees their newly Christian spouse being more respectful, more pure in their behavior, it should actually draw them to Jesus. Following Jesus should be attractive to them. St. Augustine grew up in precisely the sort of household with a Christian mother and a pagan father. In his confessions after his mother died, he writes, uh, reflecting on her life but speaking to God about Monica, his mother, he says... She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Augustine is probably one of the three or four most prominent and influential figures in all of church history after the New Testament period. 
And his own faith is ultimately credited to a woman who followed Peter's instructions here, who by her conduct modeled what it looks like to live as a Christian to her husband and her son. Note that this being subject to your own husbands, even if he behaves as a non-Christian, does not mean that wives should simply endure abuse from their husbands. This is a great, and uh, I shouldn't say great, it's a wicked, pernicious mistake that Christians have at times made. Peter's instructions here to wives follow on from his earlier instructions that we should submit to civil authorities. And there he said that the civil authorities, this is in chapter 2, were sent by God to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. When a spouse is abusive, it's the duty of the civil authorities to get involved to protect the victim, to punish those who do evil. And so Christians submit to civil authorities by accepting their legitimate role of interfering in a marriage in certain circumstances. So Christians, if you or someone you know is in the midst of an abusive uh, marriage and they think somehow they have to endure it because that's the right Christian thing to do, uh, it doesn't mean they should just mock their husband and overthrow his authority, but certainly there are other authorities, the civil authorities, that should get involved. Peter says a wife's behavior might attract her husband to the way. And then in verses 3 and 4 he continues asking, what is the nature of a wife's attractiveness? Here, Peter contrasts two approaches to beauty, the outside-in approach and the inside-out approach. The outside-in approach is dressing to be noticed. We want others to notice us on the outside, the way we're dressed, how we're done up, and it makes us feel good about who we are on the inside. Frankly, there's oftentimes a sexual overtone to this way of dressing, a flirtatiousness that needs to be noticed to feel good about ourselves. Peter's not making an absolute ban on braided hair, gold jewelry, or clothing, okay? In fact, in Ezekiel 16, in a parable, God describes himself as the ideal husband of Israel, and it says, God says there, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine. Braided hair, gold jewelry, even nose rings, nice clothes are not in themselves the problem. Okay, God says that's how he dresses his own spouse. The problem is an outside-in approach to beauty. You're saying don't focus on the external, dressing up what's on the outside. And note, although Peter is addressing specifically wives here, this lesson applies just as much to men who seek validation by getting noticed for their muscles or their rugged good looks or their sharp dressing or whatever it is. Men also try to attract from the outside. Peter says the problem with the outside-in approach is that it's superficial and ultimately perishing. Beauty fades, bodies get flabby, clothes wear out, jewelry goes out of style. Teens, I know you like to deny that this is the case for you. It's only something that happens to your parents. But for every one of us, external beauty is fading. But here's the good news. And women, imagine this marketing claim. An ageless, timeless beauty that never grows old. An ageless, timeless beauty that never grows old, that never goes out of style. 
If you saw that ad in a catalog or something on TV, you'd think, well, what is this product? I'm very interested. But Peter says, it's not a product. The secret is an inside-out approach. An inside-out approach. His approach to beauty begins on the inside and it works outward. It's about an inner disposition. He says, let your adorning, the way you dress up, be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We don't validate ourselves on this mode by dressing our outer selves in a way that gets noticed so we feel good. Instead, we focus on inner beauty by cultivating, cultivating the sort of virtues that are precious in God's sight. Note that a gentle and quiet spirit that Peter instructs here is not some sort of a particularly feminine thing that women only are to cultivate. Jesus uses the exact same term when he says to his disciples in Matthew 11, my heart is gentle and lowly. Jesus says, this is my basic inner character, that I'm gentle. Same thing Peter's telling women to cultivate here. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul calls all Christians to lead, a life, uh, 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 to lead a quiet and godly life, the same term for quiet that's used here. So Christian men and women alike should seek inside-out beauty that begins with a gentle and quiet spirit that's seen by God and precious in his sight. And so friends, I challenge you this morning, whose gaze are you dressing for? Are you focused on your outer looks, trying to get noticed by others? Or are you developing an inner beauty and focused on, on what God thinks of you. Well, Peter concludes his instructions to wives in verses 5 and 6 by turning to an example, or the, the example of the various Old Testament saints. He says, these women of old adorned themselves by hoping in God and submitting again to their own husbands, not to men in general. Christians have been incorporated into the promised family of Abraham and Sarah, and as Sarah's daughters, Christian women should likewise, Peter says, do good without fear. Then in verse 7, Peter comes to his second instruction for a healthy marriage. The second instruction here, and this is the second point for kids' notes. I know they're a little bit lopsided this morning, but Peter's teaching is a little bit lopsided in the way where he puts his attention. Second, he says, husbands, understand your wives. Husbands, understand your wives. He begins in verse 7, likewise. Likewise. Husbands and wives play different roles in a marriage relationship. They have different tasks assigned to them. And yet there is a fundamental continuity in their basic disposition or orientation. Likewise. Likewise. It points us back to 2.13. 12 and 13, keep your conduct honorable as a witness to others of God's glory. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. Likewise, husbands. Likewise, husbands, be subject to the institution of marriage and live with your wife with understanding or in an understanding way. Notice in passing what Peter does not say. He does not say, husbands, make sure your wives are submitting like they're supposed to. There's no place in a Christian marriage for bullying or domineering or putting down. Husbands, you should never say to your wife, you're not submitting like you're supposed to. Peter doesn't say that that's your job. He says your job is to live with your wife in an understanding way. 
it's her job to submit, and that's between her and God how that works out, or if she's not doing that. The husband is not a tyrant or a dictator in his home. Husbands and wives, for the Lord's sake, should both seek the good of the other. They should serve and love and sacrifice for each other. Likewise. Peter's entire argument presupposes that in marriage, the husband is called to take a leadership role in the family, to exercise authority. The wife is to submit by accepting that leadership. The husband then, for his part, is called to understand his wife, to live with her in an understanding way so that he can lead her in a way that is healthy for her, that leads to her flourishing. Husbands then, you are supposed to be like scientists whose field of study is your wife. You're to learn about your wife, to investigate her, to study her, so that you can understand her. For many men, it's not an easy thing to understand women. It's sort of a veil that's difficult to pierce, to know what's going on behind. It requires work and patience. Peter's saying a husband should put the same time and energy and care into understanding how his wife works, what's wrong, how he can help, that he would put into no problem with his car engine, okay? Men, if you're like me, many of us would think nothing about spending three or four hours in the garage trying to figure out what's wrong with our car, and yet to figure out, spend three or four hours trying to figure out why my wife thinks and acts and does the things she does, uh, that's a lot of energy, okay? But Peter's saying that is what we are called to do. Like you figure your wife out, you understand her once, and okay, that's done. Now I have a piece of paper in my Bible that tells me what she's like, and that solves things forever. The Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas writes that we like to imagine if we can find the perfect person to marry, life will be, we'll live our lives happily ever after without any problems or bumps. But the reality is marriage can often be difficult and disappointing because marriage is always the union of two sinners. Marriage always involves two broken people. Hauerwas writes, we always marry the wrong person. Okay, we like to think, if I can find Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, it'll solve everything. But we always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Men, you propose perhaps to a young woman, um, just out of high school or in college, depending when you proposed. Then she becomes a new wife, and that involves changes. Then she becomes pregnant, perhaps, at some point, and that's different. Then she becomes the mother of young children. And you might think for a few years that you are married to a crazy person. It's not easy being the mother of young children. And you kind of get that figured out, and she becomes the mothers of teens. You don't need her in the same way, and that involves changes. And she becomes an empty nester. And right when you think you have things figured out, menopause sets in and she changes again. It is a lifelong task to learn to understand your wife so that you can live with her in an understanding way. Peter calls husbands to this never-ending task of learning your wife at each new stage, trying to understand her so that she can flourish and blossom and become the best version of herself under your leadership. So Peter begins with calling wives to submit, and yet he continues. And if a man is leading as a Christian, 
his wife should actually become more free by accepting his authority than she would be otherwise because she grows as a person more than she would without him. Part of the brilliance of Peter's instructions for husbands and wives here is he doesn't give specifics. He doesn't say husbands balance the checkbooks, wives cook dinner, husbands mow the lawn, wives mop the floor, whatever like that. There's no set out gender roles here. Rather, he simply says the wife needs to accept her husband's role as a leader and the husband needs to understand the wife so that he can lead her well. And then the particular two people in any given marriage have to figure out what that looks like in their situation. Okay? How they can honor God by loving their spouse with their individual strengths and weaknesses. In some marriages, that might mean the wife manages the money because she's better equipped in that area. My father-in-law always used to mow the lawn at their house to process his high-stress job when he got home from work. But in my family, usually my mom mowed the lawn to have an excuse to get away from five children for an hour and a half. Okay? So it's not like one is violating gender roles or something like that. If husbands are leading with understanding, each marriage will look different from the marriages round about us. Okay? Some marriages the wife might work outside of the home and others she may not. It depends on what your individual husband and wife in that marriage look like. Peter goes a step further. Husbands should not only study their wives like scientists so that they can understand them better, but he says they must honor their wives in verse 7. Or the same word can mean respect their wives. Husbands should respect and cherish their wives. It's related to the word uh, where it says God uh, uh, adorning your inner life is precious in God's sight. It's related to that. He's saying your wife should be precious to you. Having understood them always only in part, husbands should respect what they find in their wife. Why should husbands honor or respect or, or, or see their wife as precious? Peter gives two reasons. First, he says they are the weaker vessel. In the ancient world, it was common to note that women are weaker than men, and indeed, broadly speaking, this is a biological fact. In general, men are usually stronger than women. But in the ancient world, philosophers concluded from this that might makes right. Men are stronger and therefore should subjugate women and rule over them. Peter actually turns this on his head. He says, yes, women are weaker, but he calls them weaker vessels. That is to say, they're like a delicate, fragile vase or something, something like that, fine china, something that you don't toss around in the kitchen, but you're very careful with. He says, honor her. Then your cell phone is weaker than your hammer. If you try and use your cell phone to pound a nail, it's not going to go very well, right? But that doesn't mean that your hammer is more valuable than your cell phone, okay? Uh, unless you have a really nice hammer, your cell phone probably costs more money. And so what do you do? You don't hammer nails with it. You don't throw it around, right? You take care of it. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, yes, in a sense, your wife is most likely physically weaker than you, but that doesn't mean she's less valuable. It may mean she's more valuable, that she's precious. It means you need to protect her. And second, and even more importantly, Peter says, despite general physical differences between men and women, they are heirs together with you of the grace of life. Here's the end to all gender wars, to marital conflict. Husbands and wives are totally equal in their need for grace, and they are totally equal as recipients or heirs of grace in a Christian marriage. With the term heir, Peter's pointing us back to 
the earlier themes of this letter. Remember he said in the very beginning, we're born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. We're born to this living hope and men and women, husbands and wives are equally heirs to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You're saying here at the end, this is the way, really the only way that this model for marriage can work if it's driven by God's grace. If God's grace is the engine that makes the marriage work. It's the steam, it's the fuel. We all, husbands and wives, men and women, young and old, we all need God's grace. And that's only found for each of us as we submit to the authority of Jesus, who's our great king, who doesn't domineer, but rather suffers in our place, who is our shepherd who guards our souls, the, our overseer who leads us to true flourishing. This is the beginning of the inside-out beauty that Peter recommends, receiving God's grace, knowing yourself to be loved and accepted and precious and beautiful in God's eyes. And then our inner life starts to be transformed as the Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus to our hearts. And that's when we can start to lead men in a way that you're happy to lay down yourself for the sake of your wife. It's how you can begin to submit women to your husband, even when he's maybe being a bit of a blockhead. You can nevertheless accept his authority through the grace of God. So ultimately, that's what everybody needs. Men, women, married, single. Peter concludes his instructions to husbands. Live with your wives with understanding, honoring them as weaker co-heirs of grace so that your prayers may not be hindered. When he says your prayers, that's a plural. Uh, you all's prayers may not be hindered. In a Christian marriage, husbands and wives, Peter is assuming, will be praying together as part of their daily routine. But if husbands are bullying or rude, how can a wife join him in prayer? Husbands, your Christian leadership is expressed by leading your wife and family in prayer. I, I know Peter doesn't give us hard and fast rules, but I would say, men, you should pray together daily with your wife. But to do that, you have to create an atmosphere in the home where prayer is a natural extension of your life together. Okay, you can't be yelling and shouting and throwing things and say, okay, it's time to pray together now. It doesn't work. You have to be lifting up your wife, uh, uh, serving her as a servant leader, and then it's an atmosphere that naturally lends itself to prayer. We're going to end there uh, and do just that. Turn to our Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, you've set before us a model that rubs us the wrong way in modern society. Even talking about different roles for men and women within marriage runs counterculture. And yet, uh, this is a way of living in which you say life is found as we live this way by your grace. And so ultimately, that is what we need. Some of us in this room have perhaps never before submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ as their king. I ask that by your spirit, even now, you would be convicting those people to say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want to be part of your bride, the church, and take you uh, as my Lord.
others of us, Lord, have submitted to Jesus, and yet maybe that hasn't worked out in our marriage, uh, as Peter instructs us here. We ask, Lord, that we would take up the tasks you have given us with joy, that we would seek our spouses flourishing, that we would try to win them if they are not Christians by our behavior to you. For the others of us, Lord, we're single, and maybe that's a point of pain, or maybe we're just young and still looking for the right person. We ask that you would give us discernment as we consider potential partners, but that ultimately, even in that process, we would find our hearts satisfied by you, Jesus Christ, our shepherd, our overseer. For marriage is only a poor reflection of the true hope of union with Christ. Thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it to shape us, to live well as elect exiles to your glory. Amen.